Oh, the shape up or get. If you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I love playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. Yeah, I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Well, the day has finally come. Ireland have won a game of football once again. I didn't know what age I would be, if I would be older, if I would be wiser, if I would be greyer when this finally happened. But Ireland have finally won a game of football once again. And it came against the mighty Azerbaijan against Qatar on Tuesday night. Welcome along to Team 33. Ender here. Arthur Ordi is here as well. Arthur, hello. How are you, Ender? I'm all good. And Colin Buig is with us as well. Colin, how are you getting on? Hi, Ender. Hi, Arthur. So, I mean... Let's start with Ireland 4, Qatar 0, the greatest game of Irish football of all time. I think you'll all agree with me. Callum Robinson getting the first Irish hat-trick for the men's team since 2014. No prizes for guessing who that was. Did anyone want to have a guess? 2014? Yeah. Yes, yes. Arthur, Like, I mean, you, you don't really have to think about it too hard. You, th- you thought about it a lot harder than I ex- actually expected. I thought I saw something about David Connolly. No, 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 no. It was Robbie Keane. He got it against, um, I want to say San Marino, but I know it's not San Marino. That was the previous hat-trick. He scored the last three Irish hat-tricks and they came against the three worst teams that Ireland have played. So it was San Marino. uh, There was um, Gibraltar was actually the last one. And then there was one other team that I can't seem to remember off the top of my head. Probably should have written that down if I was going to start the show with it. But hey-ho. Let's talk about this Irish game. It's been analysed to death, so I don't really want to talk about, you know, the the three goals or the football that Ireland have been playing because, I mean, if you want to get that, there's about five different, six different podcasts from Irish uh, Irish legends and from uh, off the ball contributors as well on the OTB podcast network on our YouTube channel. You can find all them there. I want to talk about the cultural aspect of this game. Ogbeni, Chiedose Ogbeni became the first Nigerian-born player to start for Ireland. He obviously played against uh, Azerbaijan on Saturday as well, scored a goal as well, but this was his first start in front of a 25,000 crowd at the Aviva Stadium. First Nigerian-born player, the first African player, as has been uh, reported on in the news. And this is really where we're seeing now the impact of the uh, immigration into Ireland, especially from Nigeria, on the national team. So if you go through the the uh, senior squad, Chirose Agbeni, he's Nigerian born, grew up in Cork, uh, Gavin Bazunu, son of a Nigerian father, Andre Omabamadele is son of a Nigerian, and uh, Adam Ida as well is a son of a Nigerian father as well. Going to the underage camp, Boston Lawwell, who's currently playing for Celtic, uh, Jonathan Afalabi, and uh, Joshua Coyote as well. So we're, we're talking about a large cultural impact that Nigeria is having on the Irish national team. And it's quite exciting to see this coming through. So uh, Arthur, this is like, this is what we all probably should have expected 10, 15 years ago, but I don't think that we would have seen the culmination of it really in our own minds and the large impact that this would have at such a big scale at the one time, I guess. 
Yeah, I suppose it's very hard to know. It's very hard to measure. I don't know generally how, um, in what way those things kind of end up developing. I suppose it takes, I suppose it takes time. And I suppose it's kind of not unusual in one regard when you're watching it because we've seen it, that sort of um, kind of how immigration can impact these things, specifically, I suppose, with England and the England national team, obviously, and everything kind of an awful lot of countries are an awful lot further ahead than us with this. Sort of, so it's kind of, I suppose, it's while it kind of is a new phenomenon here to a certain degree, and it's just, I suppose, it's, I suppose you can say it's brilliant to see, but it's just, it's just natural to see, really. But um, yeah, it's kind of, I suppose, it is. It's just kind of us catching up, really, more than anything. Colm, I mean, this can only really be a good thing. The more that we have uh, different uh, cultures coming into Ireland, different ideas, different, you know, the impact that these players can have on the nation as a whole, as well as the football team, it really can't be underestimated. Oh, yeah. The more multicultural a country is, the better. And uh, as you say, yeah, we're seeing in the football team. Uh, very exciting as well for us Cork people. Agbeni and Ida from down the road. Ida went to the same school as me, playing for the same team as me. Agbeni grew up in the town next to me. So very exciting. Uh, a lot of great players from that area of Ireland. So that's great. And yeah, we're a better team for it. And you'd like to think we're a better country for it too. And you would think in the next generation, it will be even more diverse. And, um, you know, at a time when there's an awful lot to be negative about Ireland, that's something to be very positive about. But I mean, you, you could also argue, as Arthur said, that we're only catching up really. But I think um, the more that that becomes the norm, the better. And we would definitely have a better national team as a result. So would you have known Anamita and uh, and Ogbeni growing up or were they a bit too young for you? Think about that. Think about the maths now. I'm only... I'm, uh, trying, I'm trying to you know, gauge what age you are. You're I mean, um, no, I don't know them personally at all. And I let's say people that I knock about with also wouldn't know them personally. But um, all we need to know is where they're from. And it's great stock. And it's very exciting, but it is great when you know anyone from from down the road really makes it like that. It's very exciting, and um, you've an element of, of pride with it, even though you've absolutely nothing personally to do with it. It's just sheer coincidence that that's where you're from. But it's also um, something to uh, something to look back on and be like, "Wow, I can't believe they're from down the road." I mean, like, is it the same for you with with Seamus Coleman? I don't know how far how close you are to Kitty Beggs, but I imagine I'm the opposite side of the country. Right? So he means nothing to you, so you're saying. Oh, no, he means the world to me. <laughs> he's, the, he's the best Irish player. In, he's the Irish captain from Donegal. Well, he's Arthur, just going to come home and you? retire. And... Yeah, I, yeah, I hear you come back on a time in the summer. Arthur, who are you most proud of sport-wise from Sligo? Generally? Yeah. Um, well, this is kind of all bringing back up what happened on Mount Rushmore on OTBM. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 it's just too much pressure. Um, like it depends what you get into. Like I know if you're talking about football-wise specifically, like there's probably I imagine there's as much pride in Seamus Coleman given his like Sligo Rovers links as there would be in Donegal. Like that's still I know amongst like fervent Sligo Rovers fans, that's he's everything. You know, he he really is. And ju- just I suppose I, I, it's everything. Like you don't need to come on and wax lyrical about Seamus Coleman. Like he's just a fantastic individual. But just that kind of thing, I suppose. What is it? Born in Donegal, made in Sligo. 
Well, it's the I, same I, for... I was all for you waxing lyrical about Seamus Coleman until you, you said that. So It's the same with Cork people for Kevin Doyle, Shane Long and Shawnee Maguire. You know, they just they made it a Cork City, so they went through and people get very excited about it as a result. But um, no, I don't know the two lads personally, but uh, I, and I never even heard about them. You know, you would hear about really outstanding players in Cork coming through, but I honestly hadn't heard much about the two lads um, before they became well-known. Mm. Well, look, Benny himself, he was more prominent within GAA circles as well. I mean, he, yeah, was, exactly, yeah. all, he was pegged to be a, an absolute sensational star for, for Cork going up. And yeah. I, I read a, an interview yeah. with uh, one of his former coaches and he was making an argument that uh, Chiedose Ogbeni could have been much better than Brian Fenton. I'm not sure why they were comparing the two, but if he was that level, then he must have been pretty good. For, and look, this is a big thing, and it's it's quite exciting at at this at this point in time because you know Chiedose Benny, he's the first Nigerian-born player to play for Ireland, and all these players. This is the first generation of what we're really seeing. Eventually, it will become commonplace, like you were saying, Arthur. And I guess that's the main, that's the level that we want to get to at this point, where the people who come to this country, bet into the country, they bet into the uh, the sports, everything they get involved, they're welcomed. And there is a pathway for these people to actually, you know, you know, Chiedo's egg, Benny, he's the first to do it. That does that should really inspire younger players who, who are coming in and maybe at this point in time, they might not feel the Irish identity, but if they see, okay, Ogbeni's Nigerian, Ida's from Nigerian heritage, that it's possible for them to do the same and they could potentially play for Ireland as well. And that's, I, I think that's the main point I'm trying to get from all this. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's a great way to, I suppose, for anyone to ingratiate, like, wherever your background is from and um, within the kind of community and society. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. And I mean, I, I suppose you can't ever move too far from these discussions as well without, I suppose, in recent years, most kind of vociferously the situation surrounding Cyrus Christie. And then you think about all the abuse he received. And I don't know, it, like, I imagine, well, it's not to be negative about it. I don't know that I'm not. It's kind of great, I suppose, after a night like that. And then you kind of you you do kind of worry about and certain I I worry about it I don't know maybe it's unfounded thing but I do kind of worry about then what happens in terms of if things go a bit sour on the field and how quickly do these same people who are kind of ingratiating and everything else in good faith become the target of kind of that same abuse which is I mean those people are still there um mm. it's probably it look it's it's probably it's I just find it hard to ever look too far away from because it always seems like it'll be it'll be what's brought up if, uh, I suppose, things go, again, if things go poorly, but it's probably not for, it's probably not to be thinking about this stage, maybe thinking in good faith about it, but it's just, it always kind of just sticks with me because it, it just, of what happened, what did happen to Cyrus Christie particularly? Yeah. Well, it's similar enough to what happened after the Euros final when uh, the players missed the penalty. Yeah. Immediately, you knew it was coming. You knew that that's the, the side of things that people would draw on and you just hope that with time, will eventually get past that and uh, it wouldn't have much of an impact for Ireland. Before we move on to uh, the Newcastle takeover, just to finish off on this, it should be said that Ogbeni, I was massively impressed by his two performances for Ireland um, against Azerbaijan and especially against Qatar on Tuesday night. I know he didn't score, but I mean, he brought something different to that Irish side that we've been missing and Callum Robinson will clearly get a lot of credit because of the hat-trick and he deserved, he had a two really good uh, games for Ireland over the last week 
But Ogbeni really brings a, a dynamism to that side that has been really lacking. And for a player of his age playing at his level, he was playing probably above where it should have been calm. And I don't know, I think he's definitely earned his right to be in an Irish jersey in the next campaign. Yeah, I don't think we um, are in any position to be looking down on, say, a League One player or anything like that because, as you say, Andy, you saw what he can bring um, to the final third, basically, the pitch that we have been lacking. But if you actually look at the Ireland squad and the options that we have, it is quite exciting. Um, there's a lot of really good players coming through. And it wasn't that long ago where we were in a crisis in terms of you know football in the country and what is coming through and is, is there any sort of industry which there kind of still isn't and in many ways we're kind of overachieving as a country because we probably don't put enough into soccer in the country really to develop it to an absolute elite level so it is really exciting when it kind of goes back to the original conversation end of this is that it's more multicultural we have more options and when you see someone like Obene um terrorizing defenses a bit much like but he was very very busy up front and that's kind of the way Ireland make the most of any talent they have is being really busy and not letting the opposition rest and I think we're kind of full of those players now which is great which leads me on to my thought about um Jeff Hendrick and how frustrated I get with him because he played really well the other night but he played well because um Ireland Ireland was doing well and I really want him to play with that bravery when it's a tight game and it's nil nil in a qualification match because he still started that game by passing backwards a lot and just wanting to retain possession. And I'm using Hendrick specifically because I want to see Obeni and everybody else when it's nil nil in a really tight game being as positive as we were when it was three and four and looking ahead and looking forward because we can obviously do it. We just need to have more faith in ourselves as a country. And there is just still so much talk about like is Kenny the right guy for the job and not enough focus on the actual team but if you look at the team and you take away all subjectivity and emotion about oh I don't know if Kenny's right for the job it's actually a very exciting young squad that generally could go to like last 16 last days territory of major tournaments and Ogbeni is um is one example of the reason that we can be excited because he really wants to play for the country he offers a lot and he's one of many. We're in a very good place at the moment, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to prevent myself from going into end of rant mode here. But Irish football, yeah, I, I, people will dis- disagree with that. I definitely think people will say that Irish football is not uh, overachieving. I would agree with you. I think Ireland is almost overachieving despite itself, despite the lack of funding, despite the uh, absolute, like, you know, tearing apart of structures over the last 10, 15 years with, with the lack of funding, with the, the management of the association. And people have been, you know, the, the usual response was, would be that it was Qatar. And you do have to, you know, take that as, as context. It is Qatar. Qatar ranked higher than us. Why are Qatar ranked higher than us? Because they've been pummeling money into their uh, football team over the last 10 years to try to get ready for this World Cup. Azerbaijan, likewise, have been funding massive amount of money into their uh, development of football. Luxembourg, who bid us, have had a massive long-term plan in, in place for the last t- 20 years. Their manager, as I said before on the show, it, it has been in charge for 10 years developing that plan. They ripped up the entire system. So um, um, like people can look down on those teams all they want. They've got their house in order. We haven't. And yet somehow we're 
you know, asked to be competitive with these sides. So I, I do think Ireland are overachieving at the minute. As a nation, compared to where we were 20 years ago, we're definitely underachieving. But, I mean, who are we if we if we haven't changed in 20 years? You know, things change, the world moves on, and Ireland haven't moved on from what they were doing 20 years ago. So, I mean, like, what, well, what do you what want this to do? Want, what do people want from this, from Ireland as a national football team? Do you know? Yeah, like, I don't know how you do this, but I, like, I, there's kind of an element of you can't really make everyone happy here with this. Do you know what I mean? We're really... Well, what we, I vaguely recall, I think you were on OTBM one morning. Um, this must have been, I don't even know if Kenny was in yet. It might still have been Mc, uh, McCarthy. And you were talking about, I suppose, what Irish people want. It's like, I think it was a party, something yeah. like that. So that's, that's, they want to go to tournaments. That's what we want, ultimately. Like, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm not so, so far gone on the system and the system being key and everything else. I, I like, there's a degree of that. But like, if you look back at your best nights following and supporting Ireland, like off the top of my head, there's obviously Italy in 2016, Germany particularly. I mean, I wouldn't say we played Germany. Off I know that's not what the situation is. I know it's not a case where we're going to be going toe to toe with world beaters and playing them off the park and that's the situation. But I do think, I think a lot can be said just for emotion. Emotion's kind of what you get into it forward. Like I don't really care I do care like you care a degree you care I suppose where it's very evident like on Tuesday night right that was that was great it was great to see us play so well against a team that you would suggest we should be beating really I know the Qatar put money in but for all intents and purposes we should be beating Qatar and to see us do that job so effectively was brilliant but I still don't think that's necessarily where the joy comes in being an Ireland fan necessarily I don't think like that's where um that's not what you're getting excited about. A very scrappy yeah. one-all draw against Portugal. In any way, whoever the manager is, whatever the style, that's kind of, I suppose that's where memories are made a little bit. See, what's what's interesting about that is, and I've, I've no doubt that a large chunk of Irish fans fall into that, is that if you bring up Irish <laughs> football in the way that, uh, in the way that Ireland, Ireland play and the whole argument around Stephen Kenny, you know, people point to the past of, you know, results against the result against Germany, the uh, the draw against Denmark, the Euros, these these results, but they rarely bring up the Georgia game where Georgia had more possession, more shots, and a better passing accuracy than us in the Aviva Stadium. And Georgia are a side that you know you should be considered. You know, we should be beating them, especially at home. I know Georgia is a tough place to go. They rarely bring up these results, the dreary, the Gibraltar win that was a 1-0 win away to Gibraltar, a side that, you know, has won, what, three games of in the last 10 years. Like, they rarely bring up the bad nights. And I, that's why I do think there's something in the emotion thing, because these big nights against Germany let you forget about that. But I wonder if enough results against sides that we are off our level like playing good football against them, getting results against them. Uh, I wonder how many of those do you need to eliminate the Luxembourg defeat from uh, Irish psyche? Hmm. Yeah, we're just after that reading in the year's moment as a nation. We just want those memorable moments, whether it's positive or negative. And I guess progressive football and incremental improvements and um, keeping the possession better isn't so sexy, you know, but it's... Um, 
that's the way I'd like my national team to play. But then again, maybe you are sacrificing tournament appearances because you are basically flipping the system and starting from scratch and changing the way we play football in the senior national team from decades old, which is was a result first business. And it gave us some amazing memories and unbelievable parties. And I mm-hmm. guess when you're on your deathbed, that's what life's about to get very deep now. But if you're living day to day and you like your good football, I'd rather have the latter now at this stage. I, I, I think we have enough reading in the years memories. I'd like to see. I also don't think it's one or the other though. Like, I mean, I think it is. sure we're, we're not going to this world cup, but we didn't go to the last world cup. I mean, I mean, like the the old football didn't get us to the, any World Cups except for 2000, uh, 2002, 1992. and uh, I, I mean, like the, Ireland are not a World Cup team. We've been to the Euros. Um, you know, Mick McCarthy didn't get us to the Euros with his style of football. So I don't think it's one or the other. I th- I, I think we are building something new that will eventually, I believe, lead to uh, the exact same amount of parties, but just in a better way, more often. So. Depends what way you look at it. It's next to near impossible now, though, not to qualify for the Euros. Like, realistically, we've no real yeah. excuse yeah. not to. Listen, not if like Ireland don't qualify to. for the Euros, then there's something, there is something wrong. Yeah, but it's not so special then. Like, yeah. So then, then we're going to have to go further. And then my worry <laughs> is that we will just play it down. And, we have to win uh, it. Yeah, we could win it. And then I'll be the one saying in the corner of the bars, like, but yeah, but at what cost, lads? <laughs> Listen, that is uh, that's a longer discussion than I expected to have on Ireland tonight. But uh, I guess we'll we'll park it for another few months. In November is the next uh, is the next international week, break, as yeah. far as I know, a couple of weeks' time. So, yeah, we'll park it until that. We'll come back to Ireland um, when we have those uh, the Portugal game and the Luxembourg uh, game as well. After the break, we're going to be diving into the Premier League, which is back Newcastle United's first game under new ownership. So that's coming up after the break. Stay tuned. Ashley came to spoil the show. A beautiful woman, a man or a name, had a vision, make us great again. Amanda, you came and you saved us from Ashley. And you took him away, Amanda You fixed it to save the tsunami Yeah, we love you today, Amanda Now you're welcome back to Team 33 and a call here with you. So Arthur O'Dea and Colin Buig are on the line. The Premier League is back this weekend after a uh, short period out with the international break. Newcastle United taking on Tottenham. Why are we talking about Newcastle United against Tottenham? Well, it is the first game Newcastle play under their new ownership. The Saudi-led takeover is complete. The Saudi Public Investment Fund acquired 80% of the club. It's said to be worth about 305 million worth of uh, shares in the club. The issues around piracy have been solved and uh, the issues around human rights never really mattered. So Newcastle United are officially no longer owned by Mike Ashley. This is going to be an interesting ride. Uh, There is a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unfurl here. We're obviously going to talk about the moral, uh, the moral issue here with the uh, Newcastle takeover, but I do also want to talk about the football side of things as well. So we'll we'll start with the inevitable chat around this, and that is what in the name of God is going on here with the Saudi-led uh, takeover. 
why did the Premier League let it happen and the issues that might uh, arise with it. So um, if you want to get a good grasp of what happened with the piracy issues, there's actually a Team 33 episode on that. I spoke to um, a journalist about it. He had written uh, in depth about the BOQ channel, which was the piracy channel. It was uh, set up and it was basically ripping off BN Sports and that led to issues around Premier League rights and would this pirate channel still be ripping off the Premier League. That was the main stumbling block when it came to this uh, deal to get over the line. That was dealt with. Newcastle are now under new ownership. Um, Arthur, I'll let you start with this. Newcastle fans are singing, we've got our club back, despite 80% share being sold in it to a uh, you know a state that is is not well known for its human rights, not well known for uh, anything quite good. So what are, we, what are we thinking here in terms of the Newcastle reaction, Newcastle fans, and in general, this, this deal coming through? Um, yeah, there's something a little bit disconcerting, I suppose, in the glorifying of it um, from that perspective. Yeah, and, and some of the songs being sung as well around St. James's Park and the kind of deal was being done. But in the big picture, it's very, very difficult um, to kind of, I, I suppose, I don't know what we'd expect and not expect in terms of say like actions now afterwards and Newcastle fans and what you would expect from them. I'm not really sure what I've been kind of going over and backwards and talking about it an awful lot, but like if it was, if you sort of, if you accept that, um, I suppose football in England particularly would be equivalent. I would imagine, you know, for an awful lot of people would be the equivalent sort of bonds and links that we would have here with counties with GEA. You know, a lot of people in the GA might not like to admit that and different things with amateurism and professionalism and stuff, but it is like the bonds are that they're generational bonds. I don't you you can't really expect someone to walk away from that, no more than we'd expect someone to walk away from just not following their county. If um I suppose it's harder for such an equivalent thing to happen, obviously, but I, I don't know. It's very, very hard. It's very it's it's obvious in a certain sense that it's morally objectionable. And you can go, that's that's fine. Now we can do that. There's not, but there's not really in terms of action. I mean, what could what can we do? What can they do? What, I'm not sure what anyone can actually do. Maybe that's a bit helpless. I don't know. Mm. I do think it is a helpless situation, though, because I mean, look, listen, if you if you look at it from a Newcastle United supporters fan uh, fan perspective, I don't know what you do here because. You look at Man City, who are owned by Abu Dhabi, a similar enough state to Saudi Arabia. You look at uh, Chelsea, owned by a Russian oligarch who has former KGB links. You look at uh, PSG, what's happening there with Qatar. You look at the World Cup that is in in, in Qatar next year and uh, talk that it could be moving to Israel after that. So uh, football has sold itself down a river here that had irreversible consequences and football fans are just sort of passengers among that ride. I, I, Colm, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this because, I mean, there are no real good billionaires in my opinion. So, uh, you know, the owners of the Premier League, I'm I'm not going to say they're all bad people, but I'm, I'm not going to say they're all good people either. This is just one further step in what the Premier League have been doing for years now. I'm, I, I, I'm just not really sure how morally, morally object it, it really is if you look at the past of the Premier League. Yeah, philanthropic billionaires, probably rare, all right. Um, but, like, with the case of Newcastle fans, you know, if you wake up 
very hungover and you've had a hangover for a long, long time, and then someone gives you like you know a nice processed hot chicken roll, i.e. the Saudi ownership, and you know, that would make you feel better. Don't ask me where I got this from. They're going to take it, right? So these Newcastle fans are still living off Kevin Keegan's entertainers in 1996, and they were 12 points ahead in January, and that. Peter Schmeichel match, like, how did he do that to us? Because they don't really have much else to talk about in terms of their absolute glory years. They had a great team in the mid-90s and they didn't win the league when they should have. So um, they've been hung over for a quarter of a century. The hangover cure is now delivered to them. And they're, you know, the, the deliverer is saying, uh, don't don't ask me where I got this from. It'll just make you feel better. Yeah. They're going to take it. And, um, you know, like, football, questionable football ownership, it's like the internet there's no going back. There's no going back now. And if, you know, people say the last ever pure game of football was Chelsea versus Liverpool in May 2003. And the story goes that whoever won that, that was the club that Roman Abramovich was going to try and take over. And he was also looking at Tottenham. So Chelsea and Manchester City and Newcastle United as football clubs have nothing to do with these ownerships. They're just selecting these clubs. Like Man City is not the club that they were pre-2008 it's a new Manchester City but like Arthur was saying like these, this is their county this is their Sligo Donegal or Cork whatever you want to call it they can't walk away and they just have to uh, accept it or else they set up FC United of Manchester and I don't think Newcastle fans are going to do that because it wasn't like it was a raging success before that so I might as well, we might as well join them if we can't beat them and um, that is the price to pay and then the other side of it is like there's never been more money in football and the football itself, we touched on this last week, has never been better. That's more my opinion, not everybody's opinion, but technically it's unbelievable. Um, your average right back now is so much better than they were 15 years ago and that goes across the board. But then the emotion kind of goes too because you're kind of like, well, what's this ultimately all about? Like, Atletico Madrid won La Liga last season and everyone just kind of moves on with this. It's like, okay, next game. And it's like, where, who, are we even stopping to enjoy this? Mikel Arteta won the FA Cup at Arsenal a year ago. Nobody cares. Like Everybody was talking about them losing 2 notes to Brentford, and that's the end of Arteta. In that, it's, isn't football supposed to be about winning trophies? But like trophies don't really matter now. It's just about earning lots of revenue. And football is content, but the content is very entertaining. And um, so what's going to happen? Like, What's the alternative now? There's no going back. Because if you go back, the football gets worse. Then he can't sell it mm. as well. Uh, we shook, shook our hands with the devil, and we're all complicit in it. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about it is that Newcastle, outside of like Chelsea, are the obvious example with Robin Abramovich, but like Newcastle are the first, I think, Premier League club um, that are well established as a massive club with a huge, like, massive fan base that are like religious about the club who have been now taken over by uh, what essentially they're, they're going to be the richest club in the world. Essentially, they like that's that's what Newcastle are now. Man City are a little bit different, Chelsea a little bit different as well because it, the fans weren't as fervent about them. I guess they they were like they're really you know they have fan base there. They had relative success in the past, but Newcastle are like a historical club with a, a massive story behind them. So it's going to be sad to watch that slowly erased, and I do think that's going to happen. I think will the Newcastle story get better? Yes, it will. Will they get better players? Yes, they will. But they'll also erase the brand that Newcastle had before that. It will become very whitewashed. It will become very corporate, very fast. 
you'll you'll see carpet seats popping up right left and center in St James's Park and it's going to be a different club that's essentially what Newcastle fans need to probably wrap their head around it's going to be a different club it's not going to be Kevin Keegan's Newcastle United it's not going to be uh, Sir Bobby Robson's Newcastle United it's not going to be the the club that Alan Shearer played for it's going to be a different Newcastle United it's going to be a whitewashed watered down version of what they once were and and that's what all Premier League clubs have become essentially there's a great video of uh, a young Liverpool fan uh, a couple of years ago and I can't remember if this was before the success or after the success but he's talking about the experience of going to Anfield and he's just like it's not the same it's just like yes there's more people there yes the stands are better yes the football's better but it's like they're demolishing houses around Anfield to build this stadium. That's like that's what FSG are doing. They're, they're you know, they're they're buying up land around the stadium and pushing people out of their houses, their homes for de- generations, to add more seats to their their stadium. And that's just what happened with modern football and modern society. I guess it's, I find it all really sad, not just because of the moral issues, but because of the what's going to happen to what is essentially a really great club in Newcastle United. Yeah, but I, I think like, um, as you're saying, like I suppose from their point of view, as long as it's not Mike Ashley's Newcastle United, that's fine. I can't get much worse yeah. than it probably has from their point of view, from, you know, from a daily experience of being a Newcastle fan. And I think, um, oh look, I mean, yeah, it's kind of, it's 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 just so far gone now at this stage. I don't even, it, I don't think it particularly feels like a turning point or anything. It just, it's like, yeah, that's about right. And it's like, which will be next? Because I don't think, yeah. like, I think I think you're doing a bit of a disservice to Man City, like, as well. Like, I think I don't know when the last time, but I think City had won the league in 68, I think, didn't they? I think they won the league the same year United won the European Cup. Um, it's like, again, a huge club. And I have family in Manchester as well who would be Man City fans. Like, that's, as you're kind of saying, now it's kind of, whereas Colm said, like, it's, it's chalk and cheese, the way the difference now between from then to now, like, it's, but that's mm. I think that's just the Premier League generally isn't it I mean I don't know yeah, I'm sure there's still there's authenticity there but like you know and, and stories like Brentford but even that takes there's an awful lot of uh, that's not like um, you don't want to criticise it as inorganic but it's more so that it's a lot of planning it's a lot of everything's very carefully executed like it's supposed to be part of that you need to be really either well funded or well thought out like there's not really romance involved as such no, Brentford's money ball, sure. That's money ball um, tactic, yeah. It's all, yeah. it's data driven, yeah. It's totally data driven. Nothing to do with Brentford. Yeah. It just happens to be Brentford. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's more interesting than it is romantic. Yeah. That, you know, is that's that, what I that, mean. I, I guess it's a really, really neat encapsulation of football in the last decade. It's really interesting. It's not romantic. And that's the price you pay, like, for better quality, um, which is inorganic, you know. Because otherwise, it's going to take. We wouldn't have the quality that we see now in our lifetime, otherwise, because it would take yeah. so long to build. I do want to talk about the football side of things, um, but we're, we'll park the Newcastle chat, I guess, uh, for another day. I was going to ask you, uh, parking all the obvious issues with this, if um, if Steve Bruce wasn't sacked by Newcastle. Uh, what would he buy with the money that Saudi Arabia would give him? <laughs> it's always been like an interesting sort of uh, dream of mine or even like of Sam Allardyce's that if he got the money that Pep Guardiola had, that he would be doing the exact same thing and he wouldn't be playing Sam Allardyce football. So uh, for one for one year, I would have loved to see Steve Bruce 
with a, a budget of 300 million to see what he would bring in like would it all be all be similar enough players or or would he be uh, changing to tiki tiki of football but we'll park that we'll come back to that some other day we'll uh, make up some uh, some fake idea and uh, what what club will be next the final thing we want to touch on is Wayne Rooney and uh, there is a documentary coming out on Amazon Prime in early 2022 um, it's documenting his career and it also says that it's documenting the uh, difficult periods in his life as well interesting character Wayne Rooney 35 years old, younger than Ronaldo, younger than Fernandinho, Thiago Silva, Ashley Young, James Milner. They're all still playing top-level Premier League football. Wayne Rooney is managing Derby County, who, you know, we all know their money struggles at the minute. But to say that Wayne Rooney is washed up, I don't think would be an unfair way of uh, describing his post-career in, in terms of the way that it went. Colm, you're a massive Wayne Rooney fan. I know you are. Um is it unfair to say Wayne Rooney um, underachieved? Uh, no, it's not. And how mad is it to say that we're talking about a player who underachieved and he's the top goal scorer in Manchester United and England's history and he's won absolutely everything in the game at a club level. And yeah, he kind of, you know, you could almost say the final third of his career was very underwhelming. Um, I wrote a piece in this couple of years ago to compare... Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney, and in the first um, three years of Ronaldo's United career, so there's been three to six. I remember his United fans and discussing it at the time. I think it was the journalistic point of view too, is that, geez, this Ronaldo guy kind of flatters to deceive more often than not. Like he's, you know, he's kind of muscled off the ball. He doesn't. His end product's not great. Ruud van Nistelrooy was famously infuriated by his uh, lack of um, decisiveness compared to David Beckham. And then, meanwhile, you had Wayne Rooney, who was just bulldozing his way through defences, had the body of a man despite being a teenager, but also the technique to boost, which is uh, quite unique at the time, to be built so strongly and to be so fast and to be so skillful. It was like a player that you would create in FIFA or Pro-Ev, and he was a real-life player. And then it seemed to me in the summer of 2006, they both went their separate ways in the road after the wink between England and Portugal, and that they came back and... I think one of Alex Ferguson's uh, most masterful strokes of diplomacy was getting those two guys immediately together and be like, forget about what happened internationally. Let's make it happen at club level. First game of that season, they beat Fulham 5 in a low Trafford. They both scored two each and they win their first league uh, of three in a row at the end of that season. And they were a formidable partnership. But what happened was Ronaldo got better, got stronger. The, the body that we were talking about, Rooney, this is what Ronaldo built, but it was healthier. And Rooney never relied on that because he had so much natural ability. I think Rooney had more natural ability than Ronaldo. And then um, slowly, slowly, Ferguson started using Rooney as the team player out of the likes of Ronaldo, Tevez and Berbatov. And the thing about Rooney is he's so selfless in that period from about 07 to 09, the really, really successful period. Rooney often played out wide, like he was taken off in the Champions League final against Chelsea, Moscow, so wasn't able to take a penalty because he had run his legs off, was taken off. And then when Ronaldo leaves and they don't replace him, Rooney's furious. And what does he do? He goes out and scores 34 goals in the 0-9-10 season and gets injured against Bayern with his ankle and never really recovers again to be the player he was. Then he hands in a transfer request later that year. So he's a very strange relationship among the fans because they see him as a bit of a traitor and selfish, but he's actually one of the most selfless players that ever played for United. And then the other side didn't reach his potential. All-time top score by two. 
and he wasn't even renowned for his goal scoring really it was his whole game as a player so he didn't fulfill his potential he dropped back into midfield I thought he was very average in midfield was really happy to see him leave United in 2017 I was like gotta get him out of the club he's slowing this team down um, but it was really sad after that left go a year later by Everton I remember he did an interview with ESPN when he signed for DC United and was quite visibly shell-shocked about how he was treated by Everton. He was top scorer in that one season and they shipped him off. And nobody wanted him at the end. Um, and maybe he didn't look after himself. I, I think he was a victim of you know what he naturally looked like too, in that it's easy to say, oh, he's washed up because he wasn't the most clean-cut-looking guy. Um, and But I think what he's doing now is brilliant with Derby because he could have walked away, he doesn't need the money, and he's staying with them. He's doing okay at the time of speaking. Of course, in football, he could be sacked later today. But I, I, you know, if I was him, I would spend the family. I'd be very proud of what he achieved. But he's always going to have that tag of being an underachiever. And kind of like the question is for like for Ian and Arthur is like, what is Wayne Rooney? What is the legacy? For me, I think, sorry, go on. Sorry, for me. Wayne Rooney is the guy who smashes the ball into the net more than anybody that I remember. That's like he scores. He scores screamers. He's a he's a guy who scores. He's both a great scorer scorer of goals and a scorer of great goals. That's that's how I remember Wayne Rooney. No, I think I I fully agree with everything Colin said there, and I I think it's kind of underestimated, especially at the time when he did it. That he, if you think so, from two thousand and four up until at least say Ferguson leaves in twenty thirteen. So like nine years, non-stop, regular starter at Man United. I really think that's underestimated how how few actually achieve that what achieve what he did under the pressure he was under at the club he was at. It's astonishing. He's an astonishing footballer. Like like it's it's kind of you can go okay. He's not Cristiano Ronaldo. He's not Messi. Fine. Think about the number of players. He's far more than. It's just he's a. I think I think he's incredible, and maybe that's my age as well. Like I was thirteen when he signed for United. Like I remember that game against Fenerbahce. Like who? Like he has free kicks as well. Like it's like it was ridiculous. It was just an insane. But I think and once they got up and running properly, that oh six or seven season on into then that he was instrumental to that team. And that team, I think, that comes along is the best one that Ferguson ever had. And you know, in, in living memory, my living memory, the best one that Man United ever had. I think he was an astonishing player. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. I'm going to be blunt about this with, just to finish off the show with a, a question. Would you take um, young Wayne Rooney? Would you take, I'm going, to call him, I'm going to call him fat Wayne Rooney. He wasn't really fat, but you know, bulky Wayne Rooney is probably a nicer way to say it. Or would you take bald Wayne Rooney? Because those are the three parts of his career that I remember. Bald Wayne Rooney was the year that he scored all the headers. Uh, year before he uh, got the hair plugs. Oh yeah, no, the 2009-10 version of Wayne Rooney. He was uh, he was the best striker in the world for me at that stage for that one season. But the ankle injury he got against Bayern, they rushed him back because mm-hmm. they didn't have uh, Cristiano Ronaldo anymore, and um, that kind of slowly finished him. But um, oh, I would take that one. The one who came on the scene first, like he was kind of a highlights player too. Like you know, everyone remembers the the goal against Arsenal for Everton. He's got a great goal at Highbury against uh, Arsenal 2 for Everton. And um, said there was a Southampton one for Everton. There was loads of goals. But he was actually uh, quite careless in possession at the start because he tried to do everything himself. He's a much better player, 0-9-10. Much better. I would take Bald Rooney all day. I'd take Bald Rooney over most players in my lifetime as United fan. 
Arthur? I'd, I'm not sure if it's Baldwin or not, but and Colin will probably notice. I want that one that, remember that time around that time from about 2009, 8, 9 onward, where they just seemed to routinely beat Arsenal. It was no bother to them at all. Yeah. And I want that one yeah. where it was, I think it was going right to left as you watch on the TV. And he made that, they were almost certain they were in black as well. And he goes for, he makes that, that run, the speed of him over the course of the ground where he's just pairing off people. I think it might have been Nani who played the ball in and he yeah, kind of finishes was, on the run. Yeah, Arsenal, him. Arsenal at the Emirates, that was, um, I think that was the year after. I think that was 11-12 or maybe 10-11. Uh, yeah, Nani had a great that game was, that game. Nani got a great yeah. ball because like, Nani was brilliant for about a year or two. And yeah, Rooney's pace, yeah. And that was like well into his career. That's over a decade into his yeah. career. And he absolutely banded down the field. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great. Arsenal had the red nets that season. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Arsenal. Arsenal Pick Barclays. Huh? Pick Barclays. <laughs> I, I miss the old style nets. This is a totally different conversation, but all the nets are the same now. That's what's that's another thing that we got to talk about. That's where it's gone. That's where it's yeah. gone. All the nets. Coming up on Team 33, we're going to be talking about the different types of football nets. I'm telling you, people God. love that. I'm telling you, they would fall for it. You know what? They might do. They might do. But that, that is for another another day. Don't forget Wayne Rooney's best ever achievement, Wayne Rooney's soccer skills, street soccer skills. Uh, I remember that was, him well. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> that is by far and away the greatest like non naughties period of uh, television yeah. you're ever going to witness. But uh, yeah. That is uh, that is the show for this evening. Arthur Column, thank you for that. Thanks, lads. Thanks, Ian. Okay, so Shane or Team Thirty Three and knocked. That is our stuff on Team Thirty Three for this evening. If you want to listen back to any of that show or the Team Thirty Three podcast in general, you can get them in the OTB Sports app. That's in your App Store or Google Play Store as well. You get all the articles, video and podcasts from the OTB Sports family and uh, you can subscribe to the Team 33 network as well and get notified every time a podcast goes live. We'll be back again at the same time in the same place next week. But until then, Ewa Slangofoil. I'll take away, Johan.